I don't know what you expected to get when you stepped in here tonight. I mean, I don't know if you expected to fight, expected to get laid, expected to find a wife, expected to have the time of your life. But you ended up in the correct place if your expectation was to get right. Now, I've got a hyphy degree of tightness to the time and when I recite this, and I might just give you the crispest spitting on the mic you've ever witnessed in your life. It'd be nice. You could just sit back and kick it, lift and sip a little carbonated twist, a lemon lime recline. It'd be fine. Toe on the line, stop on the dime. You knew that. Radio Mano Papachango. business at the beginning there was by uh, Z Trip and Latif from the record uh, Ahead of the Curve that I've been playing a bit recently. Great record. Oh, some really good stuff on that. Anyway, you can find that. It's on Amazon. Uh, it's an import, so I guess it's probably not. You'd find it in like old record bins. If they had records, I don't know if they had records when they made it. I don't know if you people even know what records are. God damn. I remember eight tracks. Anybody out there remember eight tracks? I had an eight track in my Cutlass Supreme back in 1976, 77, Dire Straits, Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band. Yeah, I can remember all the tapes I had. Um, anyway, enough reminiscing. This is another Roma edition. Uh, exciting times here at the Homestead, Topanga Outpost. Um, the van's just about done. Oliver and I have been busting our asses weekends, nights, uh, working on it, trying to get it ready because I'm leaving tomorrow to go out to the desert to participate in this surreal festival in the desert that uh, my buddy Tal Ruspoli has put together. Um, Tao is a fascinating guy. I encourage you to go back to the archives and listen to the episodes that I recorded with him. He's one of the most um, objectively interesting people I know. And when I say objectively, I mean if you if you just sort of describe his life, you're going to go, that's a fucking interesting guy. But he's also interesting in person. I mean, he's, you know, some people you describe their lives and it's like, yeah, whatever. But then you talk to them and it's like, oh, wow, interesting person. But he's he's interesting on both counts. His father was a very famous Italian prince who hung out with Salvador Dali and Brigitte Bardot and um, uh, Bertolucci. Or was he? Yeah, Bertolucci and uh, the other f uh, famous, I forget the uh, other Italian director who did the Dolce Vita. Anyway, the Dolce Vita is largely based on Tao's father's life. He was this famous bohemian uh, opium addict, um, playboy of, of the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, he met Tao's mother when uh, he was, I think, in his late 40s, maybe early 50s. And she was a teenager. They met at a party at Roman Polanski's house. I mean, it's like the, the, the guy's life is like a fucking movie. And uh, anyway, so he's part Italian, part American. His mother's American. And um, he's lived his life in Italy and the U.S. And uh, he loves like American kitsch. Uh, I don't know if he would call it that, but he loves sort of the things about America that are quintessentially American. So he's he collects um, 
camper vans, air streams and these great GMC campers. He's got four or five of them strewn about this property he owns out near Joshua Tree. Um, he's a great musician. Anyway, go go listen to those episodes to get a sense of who this guy is. He's doing this festival out there in the desert. I can't really tell you where it is or what it is because following the surrealist tradition uh, of his father and Salvador Dali, the whole point of the festival is to have as few people there as possible. <laughs> but to have incredible art, uh, I believe Massive Attack is going to be playing. Uh, another band I don't remember the name of who friends tell me are big. And uh, it's going to be out there in the desert, and that's where I'm going. I'm going to give a talk about, I think the theme of the talk is the future isn't what it used to be. So uh, that will be the maiden voyage with the van out there in the desert uh, with a bunch of crazy artists and musicians and, uh, and creative nutty people of one stripe or another. So leaving tomorrow. So I'm putting this together uh, today, Wednesday. I'll, I'll throw this up as soon as I get it done. So you'll be listening to it fresh from the oven. I thought I would, uh, you know, say hello and goodbye before I go. Um, all right. I'm going to play a lot of music on this episode, too. Uh, I've been feeling like sharing some tunes with y'all. Uh, let's see. Let's get let's get right into a song, by the way. Uh, now that I've mentioned that. Okay, this is Brown Skinned Girl. Yeah, it's a cover. It was recorded in the Bahamas. Uh, and it's part of a collection I got years ago uh, called the Smithsonian Folkways World uh, Music Collection. It's uh, So I don't know who the artist is. It just says Brown Skinned Girl, Bahamas. So uh, here it is. It's a field recording. Hope you enjoy this.
Fuck yeah. You ever heard anyone growl through a song like that before? Man, that's some primal shit right there. Really tight guitar work as well. Love it. Uh, anyway, that's an unknown artist. Some guy in the Bahamas playing on his back porch probably when these people happen to come by with their recording equipment. And there you go. Love that shit. Um, yeah, it re- sort of reminds me of... Uh, who was the on Broadway? George Benson. Big, big jazz guitarist in the 70s, had some pop crossover tunes. And uh, he always, he would hum while he played. And he played these very intricate, beautiful, uh, complex melodies. And uh, But you'd hear him in the background. As he's playing the guitar. And I, I remember someone telling me that it was a real problem. Like they tried to mix it so that you wouldn't hear him. They would ask him not to do it. And he just couldn't help it. It's like Michael Jordan sticking his tongue out when he drives to the basket. Can't help it, man. Just can't help it. Speaking of Michael Jordan. Uh, when he started, you know, when he got real popular as a professional basketball player. A friend of mine who worked in uh, hospitals in New York. I think she worked, yeah, she worked in the emergency room. And she told me that around the time that Michael Jordan got really uh, popular, they started getting a huge increase in um, cases of kids coming in with lacerated tongues because they saw Michael Jordan with that weird tick of sticking his tongue out when he uh, was driving to the basket, and they would do it as well. And the funny thing is Michael Jordan did it because his father did it uh, when he was working around the house concentrating on something. Uh, He stuck his tongue out like that. And apparently, I think the grandfather did it. I don't know. I looked this up at one point because I was thinking that it's, it's such an interesting example of how a meme sort of uh, resonates out through a culture resonates not the right word replicates yeah how how uh, you know something that's that's essentially meaningless just goes out into the culture because one person does it and that person has some cachet in one way or another and then other people are doing it without even understanding why the fuck they're doing it i mean fashion is so bizarre in that sense i, I mentioned in the last episode that i'd read this essay recently uh fascinating essay about how to sort of figure out what are the irrational taboos and fashions of one's age. It's easy to see them in other cultures and in other historical periods, but it's very hard to look at ourselves and see them in our current day. So that essay um, sort of looks at some objective uh, scientific ways that are uh, uh, separate from our context in which we can try to figure out, you know, what are our blind spots Anyway, he says that uh, fashions begin with people who are eager to distinguish themselves from mainstream society. So, you know, the the goths or the, you know, the first punks or, um, you know, people like uh, baggy pants and, you know, all this kind of these 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 fashions that start are people saying, hey, I'm not like you or tattoos. I mean, when I was a kid. Nobody had tattoos except like guys on Hell's Angel or uh, yeah, Hell's Angels dudes on Harleys 
or like some somebody who had been in the Navy, you know, in World War Two or or concentration camp survivors. You know, it was like it wasn't cool. It wasn't normal. And then I remember watching as it shifted and it became, you know, a thing that people would do to, um, you know, it just sort of shifted. It moved from the fringe of society. I watched it moving into the center of society where now you've got, you know, suburban high school girls who go out and get tattoos on a weekend. Uh, To me, it's ridiculous. You know, I'm sorry, but it's the symbol of, you know, I'm cool, I'm different. But the people who are doing it now are, they're not cool and different. They're, they're desperate to be accepted and normal. So it's become the opposite of what it started out as, which all trends ultimately do, I think. Uh, You know, the baggy pants thing, people wearing their pants down over their ass, which I have to say is the dumbest, dumbest fucking fashion ever. I mean, it's right up there with the brass rings around the neck and the pierced, you know, the the lips and the... I mean, not to diss anybody's culture. I know we're all crazy, which is the point of this little rant. But, man, that is a dumb look, people. If you're listening to this and you've got those, you know, your pants down under your ass, I mean, you know, that's that's as dumb as Donald Trump's comb over. I'm sorry. It is. It's just fucking stupid. Anyway, uh, that started... In prisons, because they took belts away from guys when they were waiting to get booked. They take their belts off and their shoelaces off and all that. So they they had the baggy pants because they were hiding weapons or drugs or whatever. And it made it harder for anyone to see what was going on. And so then they take the belt and the pants hang down. So that's like a prison thing. And then it, of course, it sort of replicates and, you know you know, waves go out into the culture from prison. And now... Again, dumbass high school kids are doing it with no idea why they're doing it. They just know it's cool. Yeah, okay. How the fuck did I get onto that? I have no idea. Anyway, let's get to some of your letters. Uh, first, the customary uh, disclaimer. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. There's absolutely no reason to listen to me. But for some reason, enough of you like this stuff that I do it. So, okay, here we go. Uh, hmm. Okay. I'm 30 years old and have no desire to have kids. My preliminary reasons stem from being raised by parents who, uh, were and are addicts. Luckily, my long-term girlfriend doesn't want kids either, but I wonder if she's just being nice to conform to me. A lot of your views resonate with me. However, I don't have the 50 plus years of wisdom and rational thought that you do to justify my reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, if you think I got 50 plus years of wisdom and rational thought, you got another thing coming, man. Um, can you explain at length the many reasons of your choice not to procreate? I need a list of talking points to convince myself and be smug when people poke and prod at my decision not to have kids. Okay, Uh, first of all, on the 50 plus years thing, I'm 55, which means I've been uh, at least semi-conscious for what, 40 years, I guess, around 15 is when I probably started to wake up, didn't really become fully conscious till 25, so I got like 30 years of rational thought, 
at most. And that doesn't count nights and weekends. Uh, or it does count nights and weekends, but shouldn't. Um, yeah, so why why didn't I have kids? Uh, I didn't have kids because... Lots of different reasons. Uh, one of the main reasons is that I have always seen myself as just passing through. And so I'm very uh, wary of any anything like planting a flag, digging down roots, um, making permanent plans. That kind of stuff has always seemed illusory to me and again I don't know that this is based on any particular wisdom this may just be the fact that my family moved a lot when I was a kid and so I developed a sort of here today gone tomorrow um, framing of reality now I think it's somewhat accurate because let's face it we are here today gone tomorrow as is everyone and everything else and so there's you know, if I wanted to puff myself up and make myself sound smart, I'd tie it to Buddhist thought uh, and philosophy and, you know, how how the pain of life, the suffering is due to uh, the, the two great mistakes that we tend to make, which is trying to hold on to things that we love and, and desire and trying to, um, avoid things that we think we're going to, that are going to make us uncomfortable. So we're running around, you know, anticipating all the time and trying to compensate, um, when in reality we can't control the river we're floating down and we should just lie back and relax and enjoy the ride, um, instead of, you know, trying to paddle against the stream or whatever. So, um, that's probably the deepest reason that I've just felt like, you know, time is short. Uh, I'm, I'm just passing through. I just want to watch and, and I, I don't see myself as a participant so much as an observer. Um, now I, I mean, obviously I am participating. I'm having a good time, but it's, but it's selfish. It's about me. It's not about someone else. I obviously I love my friends. I love my family, and I I try to direct as much of my energy toward them as I can in in fruitful ways. But um, having a kid plugged would plug me into the world in a way that I just don't feel plugged in. And um, now there are also issues around American culture that having a kid, if I'm assuming I have the kid in America, means I'm plugged into American culture in ways that I'm deeply uncomfortable with. Because you come to this point where it's like, are you going to raise your kid to be adapted to the world as it is? Or are you going to raise your kid... Um, according to principles in which you deeply believe. And that's a conundrum um, because, you know, you raise a kid. What was the movie recently? Captain Fantastic talks about, gets into some of these issues. You know, you if you raise a kid according to your own principles, um, 
yeah, that you have to, right? You have to be as honest and as clear and, and guide the kid according to what you believe to be true. That's your role as a parent. But also, you know, you have to look at the world that the kid lives in. And so I really dislike a lot of aspects of American culture, as you know, if this isn't your first episode. Um, and so... I'd have to face that and and how would I deal with that and and how would I raise a kid that could be functional in American society um and yet as suspicious and uh um wary of it as I am so I I I just never wanted to face that and then the third uh issue is money I don't come from a wealthy family I don't have uh an inheritance you know waiting for me. So, um, in order to deal with that, the expense of having a kid and, you know, and again, because I moved a lot as a kid and that was painful for me emotionally, I, I wouldn't want to do that to a kid if I could avoid it. My, my parents couldn't avoid it. I'm not blaming them or anything. I'm just saying it's something I, I remember how painful that was to like lose all my friends several times, uh, when I was 11, 15, um, and, uh, so that kind of stability and that kind of career choice, I never saw a way that I was going to make a lot of money and, um, have that kind of stability without totally selling out and, and changing what it was that I wanted to do with my life. So those are my reasons. Now, I don't know if those are going to help anyone else be smug around their friends. But the thing is, um, you don't need to explain yourself. Having Not having a kid is a totally normal, natural uh, way to live. And, you know, the people who have kids, let them explain it. Because they're the ones who are choosing to bring another person onto a planet that's already choking with people, totally infested with humans. Uh, they're the ones who are choosing to, um, you know, go into incredible debt and expense. And they're, they're the ones who are doing something disruptive, both to their own lives and to the planet. Let them explain it. There's no need to explain not having a kid. Uh, that's just like, you know, explaining you know, why you choose not to buy a boat, why you choose not to, uh, you know, have a private plane, why you choose not to drive a Hummer. Like, why do you have to explain that? Let the people who do that bullshit explain it. That's my, uh, that's how I'm smug around my friends. Okay, uh, let's play another song. Uh, Paris. So this, here, this is why I don't have kids, because this song resonates with me. It's called tear shit up it's by a guy named paris and the album is sonic jihad dig it bringing you back what you're missing hip-hop hard truth <laughs> 
We break wide in the land of the weak home of the slave. We rise to protect. They serving us with sticks and shots. But who protect us from these murderous cops? Who's heroes? You can keep your flags. I'm out. I wrap a chain around the precinct and burn shit down. Fuck the police. I'm thinking how to feed my seed. Bumping DPs, bailing down the block on D's. It's the same shit every day. Seem to mow a nigga build they want to take away. Like a slave when you can't eat, you can't sleep. Can't seem to find peace. Only thing the streets see is police and poverty. Bitch, don't start with me. I can't fade the bullshit noise that the radio play when the world wanna be like and talk like and act like and rap like the black life is all gats and crack pipes i spit right nigga what my shit's tight who snitched nigga a bitch to choose sides when we roam we beat back attack of the clones what kind of shit y'all niggas is on we hit home let's feel so the people can feel this real talk from the bay and all in between the new york holler what we gotta do is get shit up 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 Just the way we bomb when we come around. Still keep it on the map for the underground. Fuck the system, I'ma holler with a black fist. It's hard truth with my soldiers, we still blitz. And who's who with these gangsters? See a vet, these rap niggas or the government. Take a guess. See, we blessed with the speech that can reach oppressed communities worldwide. So we don't waste time with stress freedom and serving with the style. Motherfuck smiling, who wanna ride? Rally up the crowd, full hollow tips, cyanide squibs, power to the people with rocks, banana clips. See a struggle for the streets, motherfuck the bling. Nowadays, radio make it harder to bring real shit to the people. It's deeper than me. They entice with the conflict, dice and blow trees, corporatized by the vile. They smile and fear. Black bodies in the pen, it's the men they kill. Three strikes, whose life? Not my life, yours. Put the men in the prison, turn the women to whores. Ignore cries of the people, but time is up. Stay tuned for the sequel. We building a bus, going they walk. All laws I won't attack this bullshit, hold them accountable for they acts. Militant and political, get heroin one. I wipe the smile off your many mouths, mug like a gun. And I remember 99 going on tour with Big Pun. Getting this fast rap cash from them six week runs. See, I done learned from them general to wild entourages. Fucking like rappers, but don't wanna be fathers. Fucking up they hotel rooms, stay on some star shit. Know your role, play your position, rule four. You know you can't fade it. This gang truth related, we bang for change. Hitting no game, you can't hate it. I wanna slap Bush and his mammy for how we did the Haitians in Miami. That's my fam, Coupe Jack, Boule Kai. So please die, crack a die. That's the 22 generations of genocide You see, that's why we get hot, just to get by See, we sit and wait until it's dark outside And then we ride on our enemies You can't depend on me If you a pig, then you can't be no friend to me See, it's been 33 years since Fred been gone He was murdered on the same day Jay-Z was born for real 12-4-69, same year when they take one from us Then another appears We gon' take this time to commemorate NRD, National Revolutionary Day Say, how the hell do you raise kids with that kind of philosophy? Go on, kids. 
Have fun in school. Don't forget your lunch. Don't forget to tear shit up out there. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm a 23-year-old dude born and raised in Kansas. I was raised in a hunting survival culture, and I share your interest in connecting with nature. Uh, With the past election and your interpretation of the world's demise, what is stopping me from buying a patch of land and going off the grid to live my life? A part of me might feel the pain of staying stationary on a homestead or in a hut in the mountains. Got a future Unabomber here. Uh, But with no good prospective occupations in the future and with Trump in command saying, fuck it all may not be a bad idea. Because where I'm at now is not where I want to be. It doesn't seem like anything society offers is worth the cost of staying. Ouch. Okay, 23 years old. You're young, dude. You're very, very young. Uh, I know it doesn't feel that way, but it is the fact. Um, You know, nothing's stopping you. Uh, Now, I thought of it when I was that age. Man, I was probably in Alaska at that age. And I definitely, if you've seen Into the Wild, I was up there a few years before that guy. And... Yeah, I thought very seriously about, you know, buying a few bags of rice and, and, you know, getting a horse or something and, you know, carry all my shit and just go back into the woods and, you know, live for at least a a spring, summer, autumn uh, in, you know, somewhere build a lean-to and just hang back there in nature. Uh, Yeah, and it might have been a great experience. I don't know. Or I might have been eaten by a bear and... 24 hours but in any case I didn't do it um and you know when I think about doing that kind of thing now the 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 problem is that we are not solitary creatures now of course there's a lot of variability some people need community more than others but we all need it we really do need it uh and the sort of uh hermit thing you know it happens but it's very rare and those are generally people who are very traumatized so you know you don't sound like a a crazy hermit type and um you'd be lonely that's the problem you'd be fucking lonely and uh you know you look at research on factors that affect uh, longevity and the number one factor that affects longevity is whether or not a person feels that they are embedded in a caring, loving community. Now, that could be family, that could be your church group, that could be your tribe, your clan, uh, it could be your buddies, it could be your street gang, it could be, uh, you know, maybe a professional organization. I don't know. It, it, could, it, it can take many different forms, but what researchers see is that across the board people who live longer and report higher life satisfaction are people who are part of a community so it's a very important element of humanity you know think of what do we do with the worst of the worst criminals we don't you know yeah we waterboard you know people or whatever but we don't generally torture outright torture prisoners what we do is we put them in solitary confinement which in light of all this research is torture. We don't call it that, you know, it's one of those one of those social 
uh, taboos that we, you know, we play along. We don't question the, the reigning reality, the reigning uh, narrative. The reigning narrative in American society is that prison works, <laughs> which despite all the fucking evidence to the contrary, despite common sense, you know, oh, this guy, you know, armed robbery when he was 16. So first of all, try him as an adult, even though he's not treated as an adult in any other way. Right. He, he can't buy alcohol, can't do this, can't do that. But, oh, he pointed a gun at someone. Oh, now he's an adult. Treat him as an adult. Then send him to prison with a bunch of actual adults where he'll get beat up and abused in every different way. And, uh, you know, have him serve his five years of fucking horrendous experience with uh, hardened criminals. And then, uh, oh, yeah, then he comes out of prison. You give him his clothes back and a $20 for a bus ticket and say good luck to him. He's got no training. He's got no education. He's got nothing. The only contacts he has are with the fucking criminals he just spent the last five years with. Oh, what happened? He reoffended. Oh, what a fucking surprise that is. And we pretend that this makes sense. Fuck. American prison system makes no sense. It's not about rehabilitation. It's not about all it's about is punishment. We are stuck in this bizarre medieval beat the dog to make it sit mentality where any dog trainer will tell you beating the dog never works. It just makes the dog suspicious, not trusting, dangerous. It's crazy that we still do this in America. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, Solitary confinement is torture. And the reason it's torture is that it's solitary. People in prisons would rather be in with the general prison uh, population, you know, with the chance of being raped and murdered and beat up than alone. That's how bad it is to be alone for extended periods. So that's the first thing I would say to you. You're going to get fucking lonely, 23-year-old dude. Um, and the second thing I would say to you is there are a lot of people like you in America and in the world, and, uh, you're gonna be happier and the world will be a better place if you get together with those people, whether it's in person or it's online or however you do it through podcasts, through books, through whatever, technology there is to to get people interconnected the world and you are going to be better if you get together with those people form a community and use that community to agitate for change change make it better there are ways to make it better you know i i get kind of hopeless and you know in in that email you he referred to it as you know my my sense of the demise of the world or whatever but but i do believe that there's a possibility for change i do believe that we are at a pivotal moment and it's gonna change because it's all unsustainable everything we're doing is unsustainable from what i was just yammering about with the prison system to our food production systems to our energy production systems to our, you know, non-approach to uh, global warming to, you know, the way we deal with international affairs. I mean, 
weapons are being miniaturized. That's been happening for centuries. And like everything else, it's accelerating. So it's only a matter of time. In fact, the time's probably already passed where it's possible to detonate either a suitcase nuke or um, a chemical weapon that will take out a big part of a major city and you can have it in a backpack. How are we going to bomb our way out of that? There's no way you're going to stop every fucking backpack coming into the country. There's no way. Fly, fly a fucking backpack on a drone. You can fly it. You can run it in on. You can get a thousand speedboats and put a backpack on each one and send them all into the beach at the same time. There's no, they're not going to catch them all. There's no way. So as weaponry becomes more uh, sort of dispersed and the technology to create this weaponry, to put together these chemical bombs becomes more and more available on the dark net or whatever. There's going to come a day where you just cannot defend against this stuff. This sustain, this system is not sustainable. This incredible wealth concentrated in the hands of very few people is not sustainable. It's time to tear shit up and people are going to tear shit up. So, Things are going to change. And I would say 23-year-old dude in Kansas or wherever the fuck you are, instead of running off and, you know, living in the woods for the rest of your life where you're going to be miserable and, and crazy, find other people like you, get together and do shit. Run for local office. Do some political organizing. Write letters to your fucking senators. Uh, I mean, I know those are not particularly exciting approaches to the problems of the world, but live your life informed by the understanding that you have. That's, it's not much, but maybe it's all there is. All right, let's play another song. Let's see, what should we play? How about, uh, this is Funkadelic. Can you get to that? Sign insufficient, but 
Funkadella, can you get to that? Great tune. Uh, my wife and I have been married for two years together for six. We now have an eight-month-old girl. The first year of our relationship was fiery and passionate. We were in our senior year of high school. She was super attracted to me, wanted to make out all the time. The next year, however, she won a beauty pageant. And this is where the problems start. Oh, yeah, beauty pageants. Never good, never good. Uh, being the beauty queen meant so much to her and she didn't want to become pregnant, I guess, because she was a beauty queen. She didn't inform me that she wanted to abstain for the year of her reign, (laughs) her reign as beauty queen. Uh, so every time I tried to make advances, it was met with the cold shoulder. Every time I brought up that I thought there was a problem, she would just shut down and not talk about it with me. I mean... She literally stopped talking and just stared at me blankly. Anyway, after her stint as beauty queen, things got better and we were having sex more and our relationship was a little better. But then as the years passed, she developed this thing where she would complain that it hurt. However, it worked when she was the one who initiated the sex. So again, I started trying to talk to her about it, but she just stared at me. Over and over, I would try to talk to her. Then all of a sudden it got better and we bought a house and got married. So this is how the household works. I do the cooking, the dishes, the laundry, the vacuuming, the yard work. And on top of that, I give her massages all the time, rub her feet, itch her back. Uh, I like doing these things, but when I ask her to do something for me, it's like it pains her and is an inconvenience. Now, I would love uh, to do these things for her, but I need reciprocation. I just want to feel appreciated, but she just talks on her fucking cell phone and doesn't pay any attention to me and expects me to do things. I don't know what to do. Um, and then, and then at the end he says she was brought up in a cult. Uh, okay. Um, Yeah, what to do? I don't know what to do, man. I don't know what to do. You're in a pretty deep hole right there. Uh, I believe that, you know, if someone won't talk about what's going on, then, then you're looking at, do I stay or do I go? Uh, there's not... If, if they're not going to talk, if, if you say, hey, I think we've got a problem in our relationship, I'm feeling neglected, I'm feeling like there's an imbalance, um, 
can we talk about this? And the other person just stares at you. Uh, there's, there's no way to resolve it. There's no way to make it better. They're not willing to engage. So you try to talk about it. You try to convince them to go to therapy with you. Um, sounds like she's not into it. She's got a guy who does all the work, pays all the bills, gives her foot massages. And she's pretty well set. She's got her beauty queen trophy. She's got her house. She's got her marriage and she's got her kid. She's she's done. So you're done too, it seems. Um, I, I don't see a way to make this work. So, you know, we're only hearing one side of the story, of course. We don't know what her side of the story is. But if she's not willing to talk, then he doesn't know her side of the story either. Uh, which means, you know, there's no there's no way to make this better. So I'm sorry, man. Uh, I would honestly say that uh, if she won't talk, she won't go to therapy with you. She won't look at ways to make it better. Then either you get out now or you resign yourself to staying there the rest of your life. I think it's it's that stark. Um, or at least the rest, you know, until the kid grows up. Because you've got a kid. Now, you made some bad moves, man. Like, why why did you marry this woman? Why did you have a child with her? You already knew she was trouble. Um, but, okay, you are where you are. And uh, complaining about it, um, you know, isn't going to help. And uh, please do not, like, play this podcast for her as a way to try to make her feel bad or something. Because... I'm not necessarily on your side. I don't know why you allowed this situation to develop the way it did. And uh, I'm not on anyone's side. It's a sad, difficult situation. But if, in general, I'm just saying, if in a relationship, every relationship comes to difficult points. Every relationship has incompatibilities in and incongruencies and uh the way you get through those is that you sit down and you listen to each other and you try to find a way to make it work it sometimes it doesn't sometimes you get to a point where you just say look you know this is what i need and the other person says yeah well uh you know i don't i don't want that in my life and like well okay then what do we do now you know you got to Sometimes ending the relationship is the best move to make. Uh, I don't sign on to these, you know, oh, it didn't work out. Like, well, yeah, we were together for 20 years. It worked out pretty fucking well, you know. It's just things have lifespans. Things come and go. Things change. Um, So I I don't believe that saving the relationship is always uh, the most important goal in therapy, for example. I think if I were a couples therapist, you know, there would definitely be uh, cases where I would say, okay, you know, I don't think, I don't think the goal here is to find a way for you two to stay together. I think the goal here is to find a way for you two to separate as amicably and respectfully as possible. 
And certainly if there's a relationship where one person just shuts down anytime the other person, you know, wants to have a conversation about the difficulties of the relationship, I think, yeah, that's sort of an unresolvable situation. So uh, I don't know that that's what you wanted to hear, but that's all I got. Okay, this song is called Promised Land, and it's from a new album by friend of the podcast, Ed Dupa. Ed, you might remember, uh, wrote uh, and performed a song I've played, a couple of songs I've played a lot, uh, Good American Life and um, Flag. Uh, I tend to play around... uh, July 4th they're there I love it that you know Ed and Paris basically have the same approach uh the same uh understanding of what's going on in the world but Ed's a country western singer and Paris obviously is a hip-hop singer but they're both saying this situation is bullshit you know they're they're very politically engaged they're very articulate uh, one is very white and one is very black, but they're saying the same shit. You know, they're coming from the same place. Anyway, this is from Ed's new record, Tennessee Night. Um, and the, uh, the name of the song is Promised Land. If you're into country western music, definitely give Ed uh, some attention. He's a very intelligent, interesting guy. I hope to meet him and have him on the podcast at some point. He's out there. I don't know where he is in the Midwest somewhere, I think. So maybe I'll... I'll Hit him on the van. Not hit him with it. I mean, you know, I'll hit him up when I got the van. Enjoy this song. Dark and the wind is cold 
pretty song uh very melancholic seems to me he's singing about i don't know it seems it's like a relationship that isn't working but he's still hope hopeful i'm not sure if i got that right but beautiful song uh ed dupa d-u-p-a-s check him out okay uh i'm gonna read these two together uh well i'll do one after the other but there's sort of similar in in areas Uh, okay here's uh, i'm 21 it's from a guy i'm 21 i've been quite successful in the dating world since reaching adolescence i've had a few year-long relationships several casual partners some one-night stands yeah 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 um I don't mean to brag, but rather to say that my sample size has been large enough for me to consider my problem a real one. The girls I've met are completely averse to anything other than a traditional relationship, monogamous relationship. Many of them, when pressed, are happy to hook up with me as a stranger, but unwilling to consider an intimate but non-restrictive partnership. That said, I shy away from subcultures and circles, and the circles I run in tend to be filled with North American post-high school jocks and cheerleaders. These are great people, but I often feel I am the only one willing to challenge the sexual status quo, even among those that are smarter and more thoughtful than me. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm not looking for advice so much as I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Are we 20-somethings too immature to break away from our parents' sometimes misguided values? Can we use non-monogamy unknowingly to manipulate ourselves and those we're attracted to? How does a culture so inundated with monogamy and its underlying puritanical values shift toward and normalize sexual liberation? Okay, first of all, uh, Guy, whose name I won't use, I guess. Uh, I, I think you're very smart. The way you, the way you write is very you you write like a smart person um and i would encourage you to get away from the circles of north american post high school jocks and cheerleaders you say they're great people yeah okay they're great people they're great people everywhere but that's not uh an environment socially in which you're going to find a lot of free thinkers 
jocks and fucking cheerleaders? No, those are the people who are doing what their culture tells them is the cool thing to do. Um, so by definition, they're not free thinkers uh, in general. You'll find one occasionally, uh, some late bloomers, um, but also you're 21. So, you know, you don't even, you know, it's too early to be blooming for most people at that age. So uh, I just think it's important to get out of, uh, you know, that very white, mm, uptight world that you're in. And then you'll meet people that are more interested in having different kinds of relationships, figuring things out, you know, a la carte rather than ordering right off the menu. Uh, it's a pretty restrictive menu in that area socially. Um, now, another issue you raise is, um, are we 20 somethings too immature to break away from our parents? Sometimes misguided values. I don't know. I, I think that's when people do break away from it in their twenties. Generally, um, it's important to think these things through to question the premises of, uh, of the, the decisions you need to make in life with respect because, you know, your parents have gone through a lot of tough shit. So, you know, be respectful, but you don't have to live the way they did necessarily. You live in a world that they, they didn't know. Um, can we use non-monogamy to unwillingly manipulate or unknowingly manipulate ourselves and those we're attracted to? Hell yeah, definitely. Uh, I hear from people all the time who say, you know, some guy, you know, pulls out a copy of Sex at Dawn to try to justify the fact that he cheated on his wife or his girlfriend or whatever. And I don't support that at all. For the record, I do not support that. The book does not in any way advocate cheating and lying and bullshit. The book doesn't even advocate non-monogamy. It just says, you know, that's the sort of default position of our species. Now, what you choose to do with that, how you choose to use that information is totally up to you. But the book doesn't advocate anything other than honesty and a sort of clarity and an understanding of what kind of animal we are when we set about designing our relationships. So, you know, people who just want to fuck around and don't want to be honest with each other. Yeah, uh, they sometimes use this non-monogamy bullshit as uh well it's bullshit in their hands as a way to justify their lives just like you know a lot of hippies back in the day who were all into free love well were they really into free love or do they just want to like fuck around a lot and get what they want you know or um you know these gurus who are all about oh you know we all have to have non-attachment uh you know and then you find out the gurus like getting all the girls pregnant and you know that's that's sort of an old story. So yes, any, anything can be used to uh, manipulate ourselves and each other. So, um, you know, the advantage or not, not even advantage, but the, the sort of better quality of uh, non-monogamy or, you know, what I call ethical non-monogamy is that these things are being discussed. There's not an assumption the way there is with monogamy. The assumption with monogamy is that's just the way we are and that's the way everyone should be. And if you're not like me, there's something wrong with you. I think these things need to be discussed, just like, are we going to have kids or not? You know, that's 
got to put that out on the table. Uh, are we going to, you know, when you start a relationship, there are certain things that need to be discussed early on. Um, you know, are we going to have sex with other people? That's one of them. Uh, you know, how do you feel about porn? Uh, you know, is it cool that I watch porn sometimes or is that going to be an issue? Uh, what about travel? Are we going to try, are we going to use our money to travel or are we going to use our money to buy a big house? Are we going to have kids or not? Uh, you know, these things, get them out on the table early. And if you don't like what you hear, if it doesn't, if it's not the right fit, then move on. The world is full of interesting people. It doesn't seem that way when you're 21 necessarily, but get the fuck out of your hometown, get out there in the world, you know, get away from the jocks and the cheerleaders and you'll find some interesting people. Uh, okay, now here's another one. Uh, similar theme. Um, and this, this person's very self-aware. This is from a woman. I've experienced abandonment from childhood. Mother died when she was young. And then uh, was forced to leave the country uh, where she was born to move to the U.S. to live with relatives who were emotionally and physically abusive until she was 18. Uh, I've only been in a handful of serious relationships all my life. All the men I dated choosing to end the relationship by just cutting off communication, avoiding me and waiting until I got the hint. That's a horrible way to end a relationship. I have to say, whether it's a friendship or a sexual relationship or whatever, I think if you if you connect with a person at some point uh, and then you want to disconnect, you owe them an explanation. Um, it doesn't have to be cruel. It doesn't have to be extensive. You don't need to tell them more than they're asking to hear. But to just stop calling, stop answering the phone, stop responding to emails, it's cowardly, ugly. Don't do that. If you need to move on, you need to have that conversation. And I know it's awkward and it's difficult, but when you just disappear, you leave a wound that doesn't ever really heal. And you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that, especially with someone you've connected with. You've had laughs with them. Maybe you've had orgasms with them. Maybe you've had wonderful experiences in other ways. You've got the right to move on. Everyone has the right to move on. But you got to pay the exit fee. And the exit fee is one last honest conversation with that person. Again, not necessarily being cruel, right? So if... You know, if you met someone else, say you met someone else. That's not cruel. That's, you know, and, and be kind. But fucking be there. Be there. Um, anyway, um, I met my husband about a year and a half ago. Our marriage has not been the easiest to say the least. It's been tough adjusting and has brought out severe issues with my self-esteem and fear of abandonment. Um, okay. Her husband was looking up women on Facebook and she was upset about that. Um, I often find myself thinking, why did he even marry me if he doesn't find me attractive? But her husband keeps telling her, no, I do find you attractive. Um, 
I'm lost. I don't know what to do. My husband can, continues to try to reassure me that he will try to be in the relationship and supportive of what I'm working through, but I feel like he is just staying out of pity. I also feel very disappointed in myself. I've always thought I was strong enough to be above the high school bullshit of being the jealous, clingy girlfriend, or to at least understand and truly believe that his attraction to other people doesn't take away from his attraction and connection with me. I don't know where to start so I can grow past these insecurities and fears. Should I keep trying or are we better off apart? Well, in this case, I think you need to keep trying. I don't think you're better off apart. It sounds to me like your husband is supportive and um, understands that you're dealing with some heavy stuff, but I think you need help. So in a situation like this, uh, there, was, there was something else I, I didn't read, but I just remember. Let me grab this again. She says... Um, that she tried therapy. Oh, here it is. Uh, I attempted to go to therapy. I say attempted because I have had poor luck with the therapist. Either I don't find therapy satisfactory or I find a therapist I like where the sessions were beneficial, but they all of a sudden disappear and I'm unable to continue. I don't know what that means. Therapists don't disappear all of a sudden. So what does that mean? Um, you know, continuity is an important part of therapy and very few therapists just appear and disappear. So I would ask yourself, what's going on there? And also for therapy to be satisfactory doesn't mean that it feels good. This is not going to feel good because... You're going to be looking at parts of yourself that you're afraid to look at. By definition, we grow, you know, we're, we're, so many of us are running away from dragons. It's like one of those nightmares where you're being chased. And we run and run and run faster and faster and faster. But it's not a nightmare. It's real life. We're running. We're exhausted we're we're making as much money as we can we're you know having as much sex as we can we're building companies we're whatever it is we're running we're running we're trying to distract ourselves from this monster that's chasing us but no matter how much money you make no matter how many women you have sex with or men or whatever you're into no matter how many companies, startups you make or whatever the fuck it is, you're never going to be rid of that terror until you stop and turn and face it. You cannot run away from a shadow. It's your shadow. So... When you say, you know, therapy isn't satisfactory or whatever. Now, of course, there are a lot of bad therapists. I'm not saying every therapist knows what they're doing. But the point is, it isn't going to feel good. Because what that therapist is going to be trying to help you do, if they know what they're doing at all, is to slow down. And then when they've got your trust and when you're feeling strong or desperate or whatever... 
to plant your foot, pivot, and face the fucking dragon. Only then will you make success. Only then will you start to calm down. I was talking to a friend the other night who said he was talking, he and his wife have an open relationship. And we were talking about, um, you know, jealousy and feelings of insecurity and all these things that come up. And he said the way he deals with them is to fetishize them, to eroticize them. So when he's with his wife and they're having sex, he'll talk about the guys who are into her or, you know, the the guys that she had sex with. And, and he'll focus on the aspects that scare him, that make him feel inadequate or or frightened. And because he and his wife have this good connection, she understands what's happening and she loves him. She doesn't want to uh, she doesn't want to lose him. So what happens is he brings these things up, it, they eroticize it together, and the air goes out of it. That dragon shrinks down to nothing. Precisely because he's choosing to face it, not to pretend it doesn't bother him, to hide it, to um, blame her for it or whatever. So... Similarly, in, in your case, I think what you really need to do is look at these abandonment issues. They're deep, deep, deep inside you. Uh, you know, they're, they're in the structure of your personality that was formed way before you knew what was going on. And you're very self-aware. You, you know, you include some interesting sentences in that short email that show that at least on a subconscious level, you're aware of what's going on. So I would encourage you to continue, find a therapist, find someone you trust, get references. You know, uh, I don't know where you live, but there are online resources for where people can talk about therapists and and, uh, rate them kind of a Yelp for therapy, I guess. Um, But find a therapist and stick with it. You know, give it six months promise yourself that for six months you'll go every week for six months once you find someone it's like the gym you you know getting in shape you don't do it three or four times and say oh okay well I don't really like that so you know it doesn't work it only works if you do it consistently and you have continuity nobody's gonna help you um, get out of this in three or four sessions um, and don't expect it to feel good it's not gonna feel good But if you stick with it, you'll find yourself uh, at a moment where you can walk away from the old you into uh, a new life. And that's what this song is about. It's called Alaska by Maggie Rogers. Beautiful tune. Hope you enjoy it. Took my breath away Moving slowly through westward water Over glacial plains In a walked-off field In a walked-off and old me Sing. And I'll break the 
nice, huh? Yeah, beautiful song. Okay, uh, I got diagnosed with uh, herpes a couple years ago, and since then, my dating and sex life has suffered considerably. The virus itself causes me no problems, but the associated stigma is incredibly bad in the U.S. Upon disclosing to new partners, I've experienced acceptance and rejection. Having these talks is difficult, as you'd imagine, but it's becoming easier. I was most recently rejected, and the young lady admitted she was not scared by the dangers of the virus, but only by the stigma, which makes the matter only more infuriating. I'm 30 years old, healthy, educated, good-looking. I have a great set of friends and family, and I fully understand that in the scheme of things, I'm quite fortunate. I don't have a problem attracting women, but I'm becoming increasingly frustrated and depressed about my love life or lack thereof. I'm hoping you can offer me some advice to ease the mental burden that I'm experiencing. I'm even contemplating relocating to a different country where herpes has less of a stigma. The way herpes is perceived is quite ridiculous. The stigma far outweighs the dangers. I do understand there are some dangers. Um, and if it were part of routine STI testing, the stigma would cease to exist due to its extremely high infection rate. Getting rejected by people who quite possibly have the virus themselves is frustrating. Yeah. Surely it's a horrifying proposition for people who seemingly don't have it to go and get the test. Yeah. That's true. Last time I had an STD test, I asked for a herpes uh, to, a screening to be part of it. And the doctor was like, well, do you have symptoms and I said no and he said well then you probably have it but you're asymptomatic so why bother I said okay fine so um so I didn't get the herpes test he just said to assume I have it uh he said and I've read something over 60 percent of Americans have herpes but it's true that American society tends to overstate the dangers of fucking everything, especially anything associated with sex, of course. If you see in movies, every time somebody does something, you know, that challenges the um, accepted norm sexually, they end up dying or, you know, becoming drug addicts or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for this guy because you're living in this sort of world of hysteria where the actual situation is no big deal, but people are uh, responding to it as if it's, you know, you're giving them leprosy or something. Now, I applaud you, by the way, for having that conversation with people. That's, that's important. And, you know, the fact that you're asymptomatic, uh, I'm sure it's tempting to just say, well, maybe I just won't mention this, you know, especially if you use condoms and you're, you know, you never have sex with anyone if you are symptomatic, if you have sores, which, you know, who the hell's going to whip out their dick if they've got sores? Uh, but uh, some people do, I guess. Um, I don't really have any advice uh, it's hard to give advice in this. I've had sex with women who uh, told me they were HIV, H, not HIV, uh, herpes, you know, carriers. Uh, 
with no effect, apparently. Uh, like I said, maybe I got it. I don't know. Uh, but uh, as far as I know, I didn't. And it's no big deal. It's, you know, so those of you who are listening to this, uh, if someone tells you they have herpes, um, that's not a reason not to hang with them. In fact, that may be a really good reason to hang with them because what they've done is they've shown you that they are courageous and they have integrity and that they are willing to suffer a lot in order to protect you or at least to give you the option to, uh, you know, enter into a relationship with them honestly. That's cool. That's a cool person right there. And, uh, you know, you're having sex. If you're having sex with people you don't know that well, or even people you do know well, you're having sex with people who have herpes because they don't know they have herpes or they're, they do know and they're not telling you. Um, so to reject someone who does know and does tell you is kind of ridiculous because what you're doing is you're rejecting the best people that you know in some ways, or at least people who are have their shit together enough to be honest with you. And those are the kind of people we want in our lives. So um, to the person who wrote me the email, I don't really know what to tell you other than try to hang out with, uh, you know, people who are cooler about this kind of stuff. But how do you meet them? I don't know. I, you know, like everything else, it's just trying to find the best people to hang out with is depends where you are and what you do and you know how things develop but i don't know maybe look into some of those herpes positive dating apps or whatever i don't know it's it's tough uh to advocate that but um or just keep doing what you're doing man i know it's hard i'm sorry i really am sorry i wish i i had better advice for you but i read your letter because i thought you know let's go on the record and and tell people to chill out about this stuff. Not that, you know, my little podcast is going to change the world or anything, but at least add me to the voice of people who are saying, hey, it's it's not a big deal. You know, it's it really isn't. It It's something people can have herpes and, and ne- like I said, never, ever have symptoms or they might have symptoms once or twice and then never again in their lives. And, you you know, the risk of getting herpes from someone who's asymptomatic is very, very low. So, you know, and again, as I said, you're probably having sex with people who have herpes anyway. So, all right. So, uh, okay. Last letter. Do you have any insight on friendships, relationships that ultimately result in misunderstanding or disappointment? Particularly in these socially sensitive times, do you feel that being yourself will lead you where you need to go? A couple of misunderstandings with people I care for have left me feeling like an ignorant asshole, but my attempts to have a bridge-building conversation afterward have been ignored. These are separate incidents in which I challenged, in what I thought to be innocuous or playful way, their identity boundaries. I think identity is ultimately bullshit, but at the same time, I don't want to alienate people with whom I otherwise relate well. How has your notion of friendship developed over the years? 
Well, okay. Several things here. Uh, first of all, I don't know what it means to challenge people's identity boundaries. Does this mean you're gay and you hit on your straight friends? I think identity is ultimately bullshit. I don't know what that means either. I mean, identity is bullshit. I, I, I have no idea what that means. Um, but let's say, how has my notion of friendship developed over the years? Well, I guess my notion of friendship is that, like I said earlier about uh, romantic relationships, friendships end. Um, I have a friendship that's ending right now, actually, this week, and it makes me very sad. Um, but, you know, we come to a point in relationships where um, well, this person doesn't listen to the podcast, so I guess I can explain a little bit. But, you know, people, whether it's age or money or fame or power or beauty or whatever, they often find a way to shape their social world in a way that um, there's like this distorted field around them where they've eliminated anything that questions their sense of who they are and what's going on in the world. And so, you know, you meet people and they've, they've got a vision of reality that's interesting and you become friends and whatever, but then you get to a point where it's like, oh, I need to sign on to their delusion because they're not willing to make any adjustments. Uh, and, you know, their delusion can be very inclusive. It can be very, um, uh, it can be fascinating. It can involve a lot of really good ideas. But ultimately, you hit the wall and then it's like, well, are, are we going to learn together here or do I need to pretend that I agree with this shit? Um, and so when I've been in friendships where you hit that wall, it's like, look, uh, I, I can't do that. I don't care how beautiful or famous or rich or powerful you are. I'm not going to do that. And so if you want someone in your life who will tell you the truth and, you know, who will be a reality check for you, then keep inviting me around. But if you want me to sort of join this circus, I can't do it. And that's the end of the friendship. There you go. Now, mind you, I'm not saying my sense of reality is more accurate than anyone else's. I'm not saying I don't also have, you know, my delusions. But for me, the key is, as I said earlier with that letter about the relationship, who's willing to talk and who isn't? Who's willing to have the conversation? If both people are willing to have that conversation, then the friendship continues. The relationship continues. If one of them says, no, you know, this is it, my way or the highway, then it's the fucking highway because that's no longer a relationship. That's a dictatorial regime. There's a beautiful book I've mentioned before um, called 
uh, Finite and Infinite Games. It's a very short little book by James P. Carse, C-A-R-S-E, that I highly recommend. Basically, he says that relationships can be seen as games, and there are two types of games in the world. There are finite games and infinite games. Finite games are the games that we're familiar with from the sporting world, football, basketball, whatever. They play their certain amount of time. The goal is to win. You play on a, a bounded field, you know, with out of bounds. And, you know, there's the domination. It's all about domination, getting more points, whatever. Infinite games, on the other hand, the goal is not to win. The goal is to keep playing. And you don't play on a, on a limited field of play. It, it can play all over the place. It can play like the way the Indians used to play lacrosse, just running through the forest. There were no out of bounds. And relationships should be seen as infinite games. The point of a relationship is to keep it going, to enjoy it, not to win. But so many times we treat our relationships as if they were finite games. I want to win. I want to be right. I want to show you. I want to dominate you. I want to force you to live the way I want to live. I want you to do all the laundry and give me foot massages and, you know, go to work and take care of me. And then I win. Well, no, sister, you don't win because you're miserable and you're with a guy who's miserable and you're going to have a miserable kid and your whole fucking life is going to be miserable. That's not how you win. The way you win is by participating and dancing and giving and receiving and enjoying and suffering together. That's how you win. You both win or nobody does. So that's my sense of friendships, uh, relationships in general. It's a win-win or it's over. And the thing is, you know, when you're young, you have these friendships and you know, like everything else, you think they last forever because in your life, they have. But as you get older, you see things end. And they have to end because you, you only have a certain amount of energy, a certain amount of time. We have Dunbar's number where we can sort of keep track of about 150 people. That's all our brains can handle. So, you know, if some friendships don't end, you're not going to have any new friendships. So look at it that way. When things come to their finale, let it go. Because otherwise, you gotta like you can't pick something up if your hand's already full. So sometimes you got to experience some loneliness and some sadness. Because it is sad when anything dies, especially a friendship. But they do die. And uh, so I would say look closely at your own role. Make sure you're not the fuckhead. Make sure that you're open to talking. You're open to trying to find, you know, a resolution that you're not just running around, you know, being an asshole and excusing yourself by saying, I think identity's bullshit or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, if it's the other person who's saying, no, I'm done. I don't want to talk about this with you. Then let them go. Because, uh, you know, then you've got space in your life for someone else. Chris here. Uh, I'm coming at you about a week later. After I recorded this and threw it up on the net, I took off and went to the desert, and I'm just getting back home now. I received a couple of emails from people pointing out that I confused herpes with HPV. 
Right. Uh, and uh, earlier, herpes does not cause cancer. It's not associated with cancer. Uh, if you're listening to this for the first time now, you won't know what I'm talking about because I went back and edited out my fuck up. But if anybody has listened to the first version of this and now they're hearing it again, I just wanted to explain and cop to my fuck up. I confused the two. Of course, I know the difference. I don't know why I did that. Uh, that's the um, one of the dangers of doing this raw and throwing it up with no editor and not listening to it to make sure I didn't say something stupid. In this case, I did. Uh, HPV, there are a couple of uh, strains that are associated with throat cancer, cervical cancer. Um, the mechanism's not known as far as I know. But I was talking about herpes and somehow I got off onto that. Totally different subject. Uh, if you want to read more about how herpes is not such a big deal and in fact may, some of the hysteria around it may be inspired by the big bad pharma, there's an interesting article on vice.com that's called Let's Not Make Such a Big Deal About Genital Herpes. If you uh, Google it, you'll find that and uh, that'll give you some information and help you feel better about it. So sorry for the fuck up. And uh, for those of you who are hearing this for the first time, sorry for the confusion. Now, back to our show. Okay, I'm tired of hearing myself talk, so... I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm going to the desert. Uh, thank you for your support of this podcast. All of you who support it through patreon.com and or by uh, going into Amazon through my webpage and thereby giving me a little kickback from Amazon. I really appreciate that. I appreciate you telling your friends about the podcast and uh, I appreciate you thinking that I may have something to say that's worth listening to. It's a mystery to me, but hey, I'll take it. Okay, this last song is called Vivre. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's V-I-V-R-E. It's by a band called Zap Mama, who I think are Congolese. And the album is Ancestry in Progress. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you enjoy all this music and all these ponderings. And uh, I'll be back at you soon. Hope everything's going great out there. J'avais des hauts de au village à côté. Puis l'appartement au numéro 200. J'habite au 2000 dans la grande ville capitalisée. Ah oui, ah oui, ah oui, 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 oui. Chiqui, chiqui, boua. Toma, wa, wa, chiba, wa, wa. Shit, don't 